And Father, as we uh, come to the word this morning, we pray that you would continue to help us to understand it, help us to obey it, help us to learn more and more about Christ who's in it. And Father, I pray that we would be doers of the word and not merely hearers, and that you open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Judges 17, I'll start from verse 1. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The eleven hundred pieces of silver that were taken from you about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, Behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the eleven hundred pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith, who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and household gods, and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I will give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, I, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. May God bless the reading of his word. I have in bold letters, what is wrong with this picture? Of course, the immediate answer is everything. I think the best way to approach this text is just with four questions. One is what's wrong with this picture. Uh, Two is how does it apply to us? Three, how did we get here? And then fourth, what is the solution? So what's wrong with this picture? How does it apply to us? How do we get here? And what is the solution? Now, quite honestly, when we read this, we're a far cry from the book of Ruth, aren't we? What a blessing it was to have that wonderful reprieve during Christmas from all the sin and all the apostasy and all the rejection of God that we've seen in the book of Judges. But don't forget that the setting of Ruth was in the time period of the book of Judges, and it's a reminder that we can live for Christ even when others around us do not. 
And we can be faithful to Christ even when others around us are not. We saw how evil it was even around the fields of Boaz because Ruth was told to only glean in Boaz's field. If she went anywhere else, there was a pretty good chance that she would be raped. The story of Ruth took place in a very evil time period. And among all the other lessons we've already gleaned from the book of Ruth, there's also that call to faithfulness, regardless of the spiritual climate or of our surroundings. Uh, some of you work in environments, I'm sure, where there may be some Christian overtones and a bit of a moral compass. And, and some of you work in environments that are literally and relatively godless. But wherever God has planted you, you're in the world and you're not of the world. And I think part of the reason why Ruth and Boaz shine so brightly in our minds is because they were faithful believers, even though that there was darkness all around them. So maybe said of us, I pray that we also live as lights in the world. And that's just a side point. What we're going to see in these last five chapters of the book of Judges is what it looks like when there is no light been saying all along that the trajectory of the book, as we continue to press forward, it goes deeper and deeper and deeper into the abyss of sin. It's over 350 years have transpired uh, historically since chapter one. And these last five chapters show the, the spiritual declension in both great and grieving detail. And for the rest of the book of Judges, you have to view this, as I've said before, as descriptive and not prescriptive. There's nothing in here that's telling us to go and do likewise. The writer of the book of Judges, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is just reporting what is happening. He's only describing the events. But he really isn't giving any commentary at all, kind of. And since there's no real commentary, we as readers... We have to do the serious work, the prayerful work, the, the hard work of discerning what is right and what is wrong with this picture. Now, I said kind of, and I really do mean he's not giving any commentary, kind of, because though there's not a blatant statement saying how evil or how wrong or how godless the nation has become, there are clues the writer gives us as he gives his opinion without giving his opinion. And of course, the biggest clue comes in verse 6, when he says, In those days there is no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In chapter 18, verse 1, In those days there is no king in Israel. And this is all the commentary we need, really, to understand all that's going on in these final chapters. And if that's not enough, you turn to the very last verse of the entire book, in verse uh, 25 of chapter 21, the final words are, In those days, there's no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. That's the final statement after nearly four centuries of history. When everyone does what's right in their own eyes, then everybody is their own little God, determining what is right and what is wrong for them. Now, we'll come back to that later. What I want you to understand, when we read through our Old Testament, and those of you who are going to do that this year, you'll see 
that just because there's a king in Israel and just because there's a king in Judah didn't solve the problem either. They just don't need any king. Every king they've ever had has failed them. They need a perfect king. They need a righteous king. They need a just king. They need a holy king. They need King Jesus. Remember, during the days of Samuel, the nation gathered together, and they wanted to be like the other nations, and they demanded a king. And they got the king they demanded, and of course, that king was Saul, and we know Saul failed them. And David came along, and he was God's anointed, but David failed them. David's son Solomon had quite a prosperous reign, but with all of the way that he gathered multiple wives, Solomon failed them as well. And what we discover as we read through our Bibles, throughout the history of Israel, there's pockets of prosperity and pockets of blessing when, in fact, they had a king during the reign of the few kings. But the true king they needed was God, who we just know from the Christmas season, who came into the world as a baby, born in a stable, laid in a manger, crucified on a cross, rising again, and now has sat down at the right hand of the Father. The true king is the one who is missing in the nation of Israel during this time, and that true king is God himself. Along with the idea that what we're looking at is descriptive and not prescriptive, and demonstrating what happens when people do what's right in their own eyes. One of the biggest struggles that people have when they read Judges or they read this section in particular is applying it to where it should be applied. I've tried to emphasize, and I want to continue to do that, is this book is written about God's people and to God's people. It is not meant for us to look outside and, and look at those people over there and say, look how evil they are outside the church. Look at everyone out there who's doing what's right in their own eyes. Oh, no wonder America's in such a mess. This book was not written to or about nations like America or Great Britain or Australia or Babylon or Syria or Greece or Rome. The nations have always done what is right in their own eyes. And America is no different. The utter shock of the book of Judges is watching God's people go from the conquest in Joshua as they trusted and obeyed God and followed Joshua's leadership into the promised land. And from there, they never fully entered all that God promised them because of their sin, their lack of faith, their disobedience, their idolatry, and their eventual apostasy. And as I said, it's a book that is about God's people, written to God's people who no longer submit to God and his rule and reign, but do what's right in their own eyes. So it's not meant for us to say, look at America. It's meant for us to say, look at the church. Look at us. Look how far we have fallen from faithfulness. Look at our idolatry. Look at our disobedience. This book is designed for God's people, you and I, the church, to examine ourselves and say, look what happens when the church, when Christians do what's right in their own eyes. Look, look what happens when we forsake God and refuse to listen to his voice or obey his word. 
So let's start walking through the text and notice what's wrong with this picture. What is really clear is they've established their own patterns of worship, and they still think God's blessing is on them, even though they're in sin, even though they worship idols, and even though they have their own criteria for spiritual leadership. Or again, even though they're doing what's right in their own eyes. It starts with the introduction to a man from Ephraim. His name is Micah. I have a son named Micah. Micah is not like this man. I just want to say that publicly. Uh, this, this man here is a thief of the worst kind. And what I mean by the worst kind is he stole quite a bit of money from his own mother. 1,100 pieces of silver to be exact. Of all the places we should feel safe, I think, is in our own homes. And for him to steal from his mother is really reprehensible. Well, not only was he a thief, he's also very superstitious. He had heard his mom curse whoever it was that stole the money, and this moved him to give it back. The phrase in verse 2 that the curse was uttered in his ears could mean that mom, like most moms, knew and had a general idea that he had taken it. We don't know for sure, but moms know everything. They have eyes in the back of their head, and it's very likely that she knew what happened. But he, she spoke loud enough for him to hear it. In this particular time period, many thought that curses worked. And they were, he was concerned enough by what his mother said to return the silver in verse 3. But notice there doesn't seem to be any conviction of sin. No confession of sin. No, no thought of being held accountable. After his admission, he took it. His mother, at the end of verse 2, states, Blessed be my son by the Lord. What runs through my mind as I read this, and maybe it has yours, is in 1 John 1, 9. Because if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as I said from the beginning, the writer is not giving a commentary here about whether any of this is right or wrong. And what we're seeing here as we think it through is there's no confession here. There's no forgiveness here. And there's no cleansing here. Micah was afraid of the curse, so she gave back the silver. Mom's happy to have it, so she blesses her son. There's nothing right about any of this. So the view that's being propagated here is that you can steal with no admission of sin, no wrongdoing, no remorse, and still have God's blessing upon your life. But it doesn't stop there. Mom, now that she has her money back, decides in verse 3 to dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal Im image. So not only can a superstitious person who has no regard for honoring his parents, who steals, is concerned only about a curse, but no concern for the wrong he committed, not only can he be blessed by God, along with that, mom can dedicate the silver to the Lord in order for a silversmith to make idols out of the silver with a carved in a metal image. And she feels that this is a God-honoring course of action that will be blessed by the Lord. I mean, how many of the Ten Commandments have been broken in three verses? The first one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. The second one, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. The fifth one, honor your father and mother. The eighth one, you shall not steal. Most of you who have stole before know that when you steal, you usually have to lie. 
And the reason you steal is because you want something you don't have, so you have to covet. So you can probably say that they broke number nine and number ten as well. The ladies going through the book of James are going to find out, they may have already found out, that when you break one law, Scripture says we've broken all of them. So we have two individuals who have violated God's word at multiple levels, who have disobeyed God's word and have not kept his commandments. And yet, there is a confidence that God is still with them, that God is pleased with them, and that God will bless them. Although they violated his word at multiple levels, they believe they're honoring him and they're faithful to him, even as they have set up their own system of worship. So the mother dedicates 1,100 pieces of silver, what she says, to the Lord, but then only uses 200 to make the image. So she boasts about giving all of it, and it comes, push comes a shove, maybe 200 pieces will do. She's not even fully committed to her own idolatry, is she? According to verse 4, the carved and metal images were in the house of Micah, which really made his home a place of worship, almost as if it's a temple. We know that's true because in verse 5, we're told in his house was a shrine, an ephod, and household gods. Now, an ephod was actually the garments that a priest wears. And as verse 5 continues, we know that he needed an ephod because, quote, he ordained one of his sons who became his priest. Now, just with an open Bible, it wouldn't be wrong to show it wouldn't be hard to show how wrong everything in here is. And ordaining his son as a priest may even be the icing on, on the proverbial horrible cake, at least for now, because it does get worse. How does a person become a priest in the Old Testament? Well, you have to meet certain criteria, certain qualifications. Well, what are they? Well, a priest in the Old Testament, first and foremost, had to be from the tribe of Levi. The tribe of Levi was set apart as servants of God, servants of the priest, servants of the tabernacle. They didn't receive a land inheritance when Joshua doled out the land like the other tribes, partly because they were connected to the temple and to assist the worship in the temple. If you have been reading through the McShane Bible reading plan, you've already read through most of the book of Ezra, and maybe you noticed that he needed some Levites in chapter 8 to help begin the new startup of the sacrificial system. They had no land, they had no animals, but they had the birthright to serve in the temple. And since they didn't have a land inheritance and they were perpetual servants, it was the gifts and the tithes and the offerings that would sustain them and their families. Now, don't forget that because we're going to come up to a Levite here in a minute who we find wandering and sojourning in just a moment or two. So a priest had to be from the tribe of Levi, but not any person from the tribe of Levi. You had to be from the tribe of Levi, but you had to be from the family of Aaron. That's number 1640 if you want to write it down. Again, if you've been reading through your Bible, you may have noticed that Ezra... His lineage was traced back as a true descendant of Aaron, and therefore Ezra, as you've been reading the book of Ezra, is qualified to be a priest. Along with that, Exodus 28.1, to be a priest, you had to be male. 
uh, Exodus number, I'm sorry, Numbers 4, verse 3 tells us that there's an age limit. You had to be at least 30, but you had to retire at 50. Numbers 4.30. Leviticus 21 tells us that to be a priest, you had to have no physical defects. And then finally, from Leviticus 21 and Ezekiel 44, there were restrictions as a priest on who you could marry. So here are the qualifications for leadership, qualifications for the priesthood. But when you do what's right in your own eyes, when you're setting up your own system of worship, these qualifications have no value and no significance because you can appoint and you can anoint anyone you want, even if it's your own son, which is what Micah does. Now, as the story continues, now we're introduced to the Levite. And notice how he's introduced in the narrative. I already mentioned that Levites were to be temple workers. They were to assist the priests and care for the tabernacle. But by now, the nation had so rejected God that the sacrificial system was not even in place. That, 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 that they have, at, at this point, there's no need for any Levites. And since they had no land, they're now wanderers. In verse 7, the Levite, it says that he sojourned. In verse 8, he's still sojourning. He's looking to find a place. Then he finally journeys to the hill country of the house of Micah. Again, this is one more sign of the spiritual declension, the lack of light, the rejection of God. The Levites were scattered because there's no one keeping the commands, no one obeying the law, and there's no ceremonial or sacrificial system. This is affirmed in verse 9, isn't it? Micah asks, where is he going? And what's his answer? I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah. I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. He's an unemployed pastor with no churches. He's got no property. He's got no animals. He's got nothing. Just floundering about, trying to make a living. Now, Micah is a very sharp guy. That's the one thing about my son Micah and this Micah. Micah. My son's really, really sharp, too. But Micah's sharp. He knows he's already anointed his son. He knows that. He also knows the significance of a Levite. And notice his offer to the sojourning temple servant in verse 10. Micah said to him, stay with me. Be to me a father and a priest. I'll give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes, and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man. And the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. It's a sweet deal for both, isn't it? Micah now has somebody with credentials, and the Levite has a place to stay. He has a roof over his head. He's got food in his belly. He's got money in his pocket. He's got clothes to wear. I don't know, what, what could be better? In fact, things are going so well for Micah, he says in verse 13, then Micah said, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Now that's a pretty big upgrade. You went from just your son, and now you have a real Levite. Of course God will prosper him, right? I mean, in his home, he has all he needs for worship. 
His son was ordained. Now he has a priest who was, who was a Levite. He's got priestly clothes. He's got a shrine, carved image, metal image, household gods. And he believes that God is with him and will prosper him. And there's nothing you could do to change his mind, is there? Because he's doing what's right in his own eyes. He's established what's true. He is doing, he's his own God, doing it his way, and he's convinced that God will prosper him, even though the scripture tells us otherwise. So is there anything wrong with this picture? The writer doesn't tell us, does he? There's no, there's, the only commentary we have that this is, he doesn't say that it's wrong, but he does at least give us verse 1 of chapter 18. In those days, there's no king in Israel. Now, beloved, this is so clearly wrong that he doesn't have to tell us because the Bible already has, hasn't it? Go back a few pages to Deuteronomy chapter 27. Deuteronomy chapter 27. If you ever read your Bible through and got stuck in Leviticus, you didn't make it to Deuteronomy. So we'll go ahead and look at verse chapter 27. Moses is preparing to pass the baton to Joshua. Joshua is preparing to lead the people into the promised land. And Moses gives a series of curses to the people of which they were supposed to respond, amen to, or so be it. There's about 12 curses. We'll just read verse 15. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret, and all the people shall answer and say, Amen. I want to try that. I want to do that. I'm going to say it again. I want you to answer Amen. I want to see how it sounded back in the day. Okay, so I want to hear a good hearty Amen as if you're in the wilderness. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret, and all the people shall answer and say, So no, Micah, you have carved images, metal images. God will not prosper you. And there's actually a curse against you regardless of what you believe. And one of the serious dangers in this is that when things go well for a person, a church, or a religious institution or organization that's doing things contrary to Scripture, it confirms their foolish, darkened minds that doing their own thing is being blessed by God. And they don't see that what is taking place has nothing to do with God. That's clearly what happened to Micah here. He felt he's obeying God with all of his idol worship, and then from his perspective, the provision of the Levite to be his priest, well, the more reason to believe that God's blessing, you see, because God's given me this Levite, and now he really will prosper me. Now, what we know from the book of Judges is that God has actually made himself absent of the people. He's pulled back. He's no longer delivering them. He's corrected and corrected and disciplined and disciplined and delivered over and over and over. And we know now that he has left them. And at this point, their form of worship that they're involved in is unrecognizable to what this scripture actually teaches. 
but they think they're right. Isaiah 66, 2. But this is the one whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. It's obedience to God's word that blesses. It's obedience to his word that God supports. It's worshiping God his way according to his commands that will cause God to look with favor upon his people. Worshiping God your own way is the tragic end result of having no king, no rule, no Bible, no word from God, no standards, no commands, and no right from wrong. And when you do what's right in your own eyes, and you become your own law, your own standard, your own God, you'll think you're right. Again, this is to God's people, about God's people. So how can individuals be so far from God, so far from the two, so far from Scripture, and still believe that God's blessing is upon them and God is with them? Beloved, it isn't very different today in the church. The hard part in seeing this is understanding that our idolatry, our worship of false gods, our putting our gods before God is different because our gods aren't physical. I've been to a lot of your homes and you've been to to mine. I don't think any of us have a physical shrine. I don't think I've ever seen a metal image or a carved image at your homes. Um, I suppose if I get a bigger TV, someone could blame me for that. I tease my wife about that all the time. I, I, just want to, I just want someone to walk in and see this gigantic TV. It's not a God, though. I don't watch it very often. But there are modern idols that prevent us from worshiping the true God or worshiping him the right way or the way that he's commanded we worship him. You see, instead of worshiping him the way he's revealed we should worship him, we we do what's right in our own eyes. I'm just going to give one example. And this example I'm going to give, honestly, as I talk to pastors literally throughout the country, is, 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 is throughout the country. Let's follow along. We are commanded not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. The early church gathered on the first day of the week. The weekly gathering of the body of Christ together as an assembled congregation is a fundamental part of your life as a Christian. So thankful you're here this morning. And when you come to faith in Christ, the gathering with your new spiritual family should be a want to, not a have to. And it's really our understanding of salvation. Because you've been brought from darkness to light, from death to life, from slavery to freedom, and you're now joined with others who have also been saved from sin and hell and death, and you are eternally connected to them. And you gather once a week to give praise and glory and honor to the one who has delivered you, and you unite with others and continue to learn and grow and love the one who saved you and love the others who he has saved. And I hope that's why you're here this morning. Sinclair Ferguson, in a book called Devoted to God's Church, makes the point that Christ loves the church and gave himself for it. And then he goes on to say this. If that's true, 
then it follows that a disciple, as a disciple of Jesus, I too should love the church, means the people in the church. It should be central to my life. He says, it is simply not possible to live a God-centered, Christ-centered, spirit-led life unless my life is also church-centered. Now that's a really strong statement. Uh, do you believe that? It's not possible. It's impossible to live a God-centered, Christ-centered, spirit-led life unless my life is also church-centered. You see, church-centered, Christ-centered, God-centered, spirit-led all go hand in hand. Now, he goes on in the book to explain what he means by church-centered. We're going to come to that in our series on the church after we finish Judges. But most modern church attenders see church as a Sunday morning hour-and-a-half add-on that can be skipped when I'm tired, when I have a special event, when I'm on vacation, when I spend time with my family, when I'm too busy, when I have too much housework, when I have too much homework, or I just need a break. And you see, since church is an add-on to a busy life, the first thing that goes, the first thing I can neglect when I need to do something is I can eliminate church. Because instead of the center where the rest of my life revolves around my love and commitment to Christ, the church is the perimeter of my life, my calendar, and my schedule. And, with, and when, without good reason, illness, emergency, caring for others, whatever, you neglect the gathering, when we do that, we're actually doing what's right in our own eyes. Because what we think is, what we're doing on that particular Sunday is better for us than what God has commanded us to do. Now, I don't know about you, but I feel like skipping church every week. Full confession. Full confession. We just got back from vacation. I need a day off. I would love to have stayed home today. In fact, if I'd have slept in today, I'd be so much more refreshed from Monday through Friday. As it is, I'm going to start the week behind. And if I could have convinced my wife to stay home with me, we could have had a nice breakfast. We could have sipped coffee together. We could have talked the way we didn't talk when we were visiting my grandkids. I mean, it would have been probably one of the most refreshing times that we could have had if I'd have just... From my perspective, just taking the day off. Well, what's wrong with that picture apart from the fact I'm the pastor? It was disobedient. It's neglecting the assembly. We gather the first day of the week as believers. Making my own rules. Doing my own thing. Doing what's right in my eyes. Putting myself above the Lord. Putting my wife and my family above the Lord. My life. My leisure. What I think I need. I promise you, the days you think you need to stay home is the day that God had something for you and you missed it. And because of your own disobedience, doing what's right in your own eyes, God's word never comes back void. Beloved, I, I want to be able to say this and not say this in a way that, and I'll come to that, about checking boxes. When you became a believing Christian, you were adopted into a new family. You were made a citizen of a new kingdom. You became part of a body. And now you're a stone in God's building. And because of all that he has done for you in Christ, 
And because of your regenerate heart, you now should long to come together with your new family, with those who you're in a new kingdom with that you belong to, and to use your gifts in this new body and come to be a support to the building. Uh, the, the, the Christian life is not one more thing we do as an American individualist. It is a corporate endeavor, and it's a command that we're together. And more than gathering on Sunday morning just to check a box, the very metaphors I just used in Scripture demonstrate our connection to one another. Family members in a family interact apart from Sundays. And not just with your nuclear blood family. Body parts function with one another. I mean, stones in a building, you may not like it, but we're right next to each other, side by side, supporting each other. The church is not just box checking on a Sunday morning. It should be building relationships so that you can participate in the one another commands and submit to your leaders and bear each other's burdens and serve and pray and offend and then forgive one another and become a member of this local church. You cannot do any of that. You won't do any of that if it's an add-on. If you're not committed to Christ and his body. Now, honestly, for some of you, you've lived such individual Christian lives that what I'm telling you is brand new to you. You're probably ready to have your head explode right now because you're like, oh, I don't know, that guy's really getting off. It's very legalistic. Others of you have had such bad church experiences, and I have too, such bad church experiences that you're trying to be faithful. It's so hard because you're so afraid of getting hurt again. I mean, you're just glad you made it here and you want to get out of here as fast as you can. In fact, if, if there was a door somewhere else, you'd sneak out that one. We have been there. We have been there. Others of you are so tied to the same people week after week that you just talk to the same circles. And you never even see others in the body of Christ around you. So let me encourage you. 2022 to pray. Pray that God would work in your heart to become more faithful and more committed to Christ and his body that you might get out of your circle. Take a risk. Get out of your clique. Get to know other family members. Get to know other people in the body. Fellowship with other body parts. Get next to other stones in the building to serve them better and bear their burdens. And again, become a member. Take a risk. Huh? Can you imagine having someone outside your circle over for dinner or coffee or a restaurant? You might as well. We're going to spend eternity together. So just start this week. Now, if you don't see or understand what I'm saying, and anything I'm saying right now is causing you to deflect and defend your position as to why you're not faithful. Oh, beloved, examine your heart. At least come and talk to me. We'll walk through the scriptures together and we'll do all we can to help you understand both salvation and the doctrine of the church. The Bible is clear. God is clear. You cannot live the Christian life without the church. And if you think you can, you're doing what's right. 
in your own eyes. Much like Micah, the 21st century churchgoer has their own way to worship. I brought this up in a conversation with someone recently, and, and the guy said, well, I know someone that goes to a home Bible study on Tuesdays. Does that count? Um, I know someone who live streams from a particular church in a different state. Is that okay? Those are great, but those are additions. They're not the church. Because when the church gathers, we don't have the option to just do as we please. The scripture is clear that when we gather to worship God, we, we have to publicly read the scriptures. We have to pray. We have to sing. We fellowship. We preach. Uh, we, we participate in baptism and the Lord's Supper under the authority of God-ordained qualified leadership. You, you can't do that apart from being a member of a local church and gathering here on Sunday morning or even somewhere else if that's where you're attending. Sadly, today's modern believer can neglect the congregational meeting and hear a better sermon from a better preacher that has, that has more musicians and more music and more comfortable conditions in their own home and believe that they met with God and God's blessings upon them and God's prospering them, even though they're not with a gathered assembly, even though they're disobedient. They're as blind and disobedient as Micah in Judges 17 doing what is right in their own eyes. I don't think we're going to see the full effects of that mindset for another 20 years. But our lack of faithfulness is already having a severe effect on the next generation. Now, how did the nation of Israel come to this place? It took them 350 years to get there. Go back to Joshua, uh, Judges chapter 1 for a moment. It's been a long time since we were there, but you remember chapter 1? Uh, Judges chapter 1 is a continuation of all that took place under Joshua's leadership. It was powerful. In verse 1, Judah and Simeon had fought against the Canaanites. They defeated them. Verse 8, they captured Jerusalem. In verse 10, remember they defeated the giants. We know they're giants by their names. You got Shishai, you got a high man and tall my. See, those are names of really tall people, right? Othniel, Caleb's nephew, went out and conquered Kiryas Ephra and got, and got a wife from it. The conquest was continued until you come to verse 19. And the Lord was with Judah. He took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. And the tragic results in verse 27, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshean and its villages, or Tanakh and its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor and its villages, or the inhabitants of Ibliam and its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo and its villages. For the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Now, we went over this several months ago. But the nation under Joshua's leadership began walking faithfully, trusting in God to deliver them. And at some point, they no longer trusted, no longer believed, no longer obeyed. The command was to take the land, destroy the idols, destroy the idolaters. And their disobedience caused their downward spiral into the abyss of sin. 
In chapter 2 is when they first got their major rebuke from the angel of the Lord. And he says in verse 2, the middle of verse 2, But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Their disobedience brought God's judgment against them. And since God was no longer driving out the nations before them, they went down that slippery slope that allowed the culture to become the nation. We know they worshiped Canaanite gods. They bowed before Baal. They bowed before Ashtaroth. And they came to the place that even when Samson was judged, they had no interest in being delivered anymore. And after 350 years of disobedience, what else is there but doing what's right in your own eyes? A lack of faith, a lack of trust leads to disobedience, leads to compromise, leads to cultural assimilation, leads to apostasy, which leads to doing what's right in our own eyes and being our own God. We have to nip it in the bud and we have to nip it early. So it forces us to ask the questions on a personal level. What areas in my life am I compromising? What areas in my life are not God honoring? What areas in my life have I not surrendered to the authority of Christ and his word? I mean, the key is to cut it off early. Remove the cancer before it spreads. Now, those are more personal questions, but what about the corporate questions? Is there anything as a church that we need to repent of? You know, one of the phrases that came out of the Reformation is reformed and always reforming. We desperately need the truth of God's word to constantly help us to become more in line with it because we are sinners and we're prone to wander. So what do we need to do to recalibrate? Are there any relationships among us that need to be restored? Are we involved in anything that's right in our own eyes yet completely contrary to God's word? These are great questions for all of us in any generation. And the only hope of all this, the only escape from doing what's right in our own eyes, is coming to the place where we're bowing before the right king. And it's the king with a capital K when I use the word king. See, the king we need is Jesus. And when I say king, then we're affirming his rules, his reign, his word, his commands, and we're following his orders. So we do not do what's right in our own eyes. We do what's right in his eyes. We are where we are because of disobedience, and the only way back is to confess our sin and to walk in obedience. The corrective is always bowing before Christ and obeying his commands. As I think about the grand scheme of things, of what's taking place in the church around the country, I know I'm not the only one saying this. The church is surely on a downward trajectory because Jesus is not king, and everybody is doing what's right in their own eyes. But we can change that. It starts with you. It starts with me. What has to change in my life to fully submit to Christ and his rule and his reign, and the same with you. I think it starts with a fresh vision 
of who God is and all that he's done. We know that he's seated on the throne. We know we come to adore him. And I pray that even as we close in that song, that this frames all that we desire for us in 2022. Let's bow in prayer. Father, I, we come before you right now to corporately confess our sin. Father, we are a disjointed body. Lord, at multiple levels, we are a dysfunctional family. And at other levels, we are a broken building. We confess that we have not loved you or obeyed you the way we ought. We confess that we have not lived in harmony with one another as we're commanded. We confess also we haven't been faithful to you as a church. It's affected our relationships with you, our relationships over the years. It's affected our testimony to the outside world where we live. And Father, I ask that you would forgive us. I ask that you would cleanse us. I ask that you would restore us and cause your face to shine upon us. And may we become a family. May we function as a loving, gracious body. May we be strengthened as a firm building built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. Father, we pray as for these things and we dedicate our lives to you afresh, even at this moment. In Christ's name I pray, amen. amen. Please stand.